2: Register now for PASA's 2023 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, featuring more than 90 sessions on farming and food systems, as well as mixers and meetups and a trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org conference.
1: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we're going to look at Taiwanese food, or the food of Taiwan, as my author has named her book, Taiwanese food is kind of, I think, I think uh, Julia Moskin maybe said it best in the New York Times, a kaleidoscope mix of cultures, as so many different nations are. Look at the U.S., but Taiwan in particular uh, has had so many different influences that were actually controlling the island, little island that it is, from the Fujian Chinese to the Hakka to the Japanese, uh, so many different cuisines. And yet people, you say food of Taiwan, and most people will say, well, it's Chinese food. Hmm. There's a lot of braising, a lot of pickling, a lot of steaming and deep frying. And of course, there are noodles. And we will hear why there's so much different influences in these foods, when um, I talked to my guest, Kathy Irway. Kathy is a food blogger, a freelance food writer, for which she won a James Beard Foundation Award, and the author of the cookbook, The Food of Taiwan, as I mentioned. She also is the author of Sheet Pan Chicken, The Art of Eating In, how I Learned to Stop Spending and Love the Stove. And most recently, she co-wrote a book with the restaurateurs of Sun, a Taiwanese-American restaurant in Brooklyn, New York, which just came out this past week. Kathy was one of the early podcasters on Heritage Radio Network with her show, Eat Your Words. Before that, wasn't it um, Not Eating Out? It Was this a show...
3: <laughs> yes, thanks, thanks, Linda. Yeah, um, yeah the show was called. Uh, actually, the in, the first name of the show on Heritage Radio Network was called Cheap Date, where I interviewed guests about how they would, <laughs> you know, cook at home and um, you know entertain maybe on a date, <laughs> um, or just, you know, with their friends. So it was like a home cooking base show. Then it, then it, I got like a, some cease and desist letter from some other entity called cheap date. And, oh. uh, <laughs> I changed it to let's eat in same, same topic. But then soon after that, this was very early days. This is like two thousand nine. I am talking right. about. Right. Um, uh, I changed it to let's eat in, and it was um, it then <laughs> focused on on books and uh, authors of all kinds of food food related books. So, you know, cookbook authors, but also food politics uh, exposés and memoirs, and even novels about food.
1: Right. So it went, and then it was called Eating Your Words. Eat eat your, words, words. Yeah. Eat your words, yeah, right. eat your words,
3: sorry, sorry, right, that's all
1: right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and it's interesting because um, often we would overlap on the on the yeah, That's on. right, but,
3: that's right. I loved I love seeing that, Linda.
1: <laughs> then Kathy went on. You went on to host an award winning show on Gimlet called mm-hmm. "Why We Eat What We Eat." That's right, Kathy, right. Kathy's been teaching a writing course at Boston University School of Gastronomy. And she just wrapped up a season, as she said, of Self-Evident Show, a mm-hmm. podcast focused on community-driven Asian-American stories, of which she is a co-founding partner. Uh, the podcast challenges, well. the, the little that I listened um, so far, it challenges the narratives of Asian-American experience. And she is fascinated by the intersection of culture, food, and race, and Kathy, you wrote the book Food of Taiwan in was it 2015?
3: Yeah, that's right. right.
1: Well, tell us how you approached this. Tell us about your background and why mm-hmm. you why and how you got to this topic.
3: Right. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, so my mom is from Taiwan. I always found it to have uh, you know, I've I've traveled there when I was little, but I also spent a semester in Taiwan when I was in college. So I, I always, you know, thought the food was amazing and I just didn't see much discourse about it in America. So I wanted to just really geek out about it and, um, explore it more personally. And I, you know, if, you know, if I'm the one also looking around for English language resources and just kind of information about this book, I figured maybe other people would too. So I wanted to set out to write a cookbook about it. Um, Ended. And yeah. And then I did <laughs> long story short. Yes. Eventually I did.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's always been this enigma to me because, you know, I, I too, you know, kind of like most people relate the food with the food of China, which is mm-hmm. not incorrect, obviously. Um, but the more I learned and then of course we both did, both had a connection with a noodle um, uh, producer that, uh even talking oh, about yes. noodles uh-huh. finding out, yeah finding about yeah. out about the the different noodles yeah and so then what drew my attention back to it once again uh was your recent article on
3: Jiang Mian,
1: an incredible noodle dish that you <laughs> that you explored and wrote mm-hmm. up for eater i mean you have written for just about every blog and and food magazine. I mean, you're all over the place. Congratulations to you. Thank you. And they're always really interesting articles, whether it's on Asian food or American, you know, new Mm -hmm. trends or whatever's happening, because you do, as you said, you geek out, you really, you (laughs) do the deep dive and, and get to the bottom of, of most things. And, and I like that because that's what I like to do. Um, you. This so this dish I I said well why I've never really I heard about the zheng jeng sauce the red bean mm-hmm. fermented red bean sauce but this particular noodle dish I guess I just never paid attention never really heard about until mm-hmm. I read that article mm-hmm. and it's not and that's not even a tr- um, originally Taiwanese it's
3: yeah exactly it's very popular in Taiwan but it's originally from northern China
1: mm-hmm. so. Why don't you tell us a little bit about a brief history of Taiwan and why there are so many mm-hmm. different influences and, and and perhaps competing flavors going on? Of course,
3: on. yeah. I mean, it's a very contentious uh, you know, relationship with China, as, as most people know. I feel like most people know that uh, China and Taiwan have a very uh, tricky relations, and uh, and Taiwanese food is really good. So, I mean... <laughs> But but to back up, um, Taiwan has been an island that has had an Aboriginal population for for thousands of years, um, and but you know it also became a place where people from from China um, found refuge over the years, over the centuries. Um, so one group is the Hakka, who is a an ethnic minority. Um, throughout um, throughout China. And they, there's a rich diaspora of Hakka people th- um, around the world actually, but um, in Taiwan. And um, people just across the Taiwan Strait from Fujian have also made Taiwan their home over the centuries, um, like of the modern, you know, centuries of 15, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, However, in late uh, 1800, so like 1895, I believe, um, China lost a war against Japan. It was the second Sino-Japanese war, and they ceded um, uh, uh, China I mean sorry, Taiwan to Japan. So Japan colonized um, uh, Taiwan for 50 years up until Japan's surrender to the Allies in 1945 in the World War II. Then they ceded all their foreign territories. It's a little unclear who now uh, <laughs> claimed, who now owned Taiwan.
1: Right. So
3: um, Because at that time, China was embroiled in a civil war of its own. So there was this competing sides. One was the communists. The other was the nationalists. And I think we all know that the communists won. <laughs> but um, the nationalists retreated to make Taiwan their home and um, you know set up a government there. It was completely separate from china um it was military rule up until 19 the 1980s however and um but it's been ever since you know then a a democracy it's been completely ruled on its own separate from china has flourished with a culture of its own thanks to all the um various people who have uh you know, populated it, as I mentioned, the, the Aboriginal groups, there was the, um, the folks from Fujian province, there's folks from Hakka, but I didn't mention that along with the nationalist army, a lot of people from China fled the communists to go live in Taiwan. And that includes my grandparents. So people from all over China, um, some, some estimated 1.2, 1.5 to 2 million folks, um, moved to uh, Taiwan and so this was in the nineteen fifty uh, late 1940s so mm-hmm. ever since then the food culture has reflected all these rich traditions that have mingled in Taiwan
1: yeah you can imagine everybody what does somebody bring with them when they right. move to a new country it's it's food. what they know and that's mm-hmm. their food right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's
3: always a long-winded explanation. So <laughs> well,
1: that's but 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 that explains so much to so many people because mm-hmm. it is and it's just a small island. I mean, if you mm-hmm. you know you look at it in comparison to you know the other you know the, the mainland China around it, it's just it's this little sliver of an island and so many different people living there. Yeah. Interesting yeah. and an interesting topography. You've got the ocean, the mountains. I mean, right. it's really quite quite interesting.
3: It is, yeah. Surrounded by sea. You've got a lot of seafood, too. So all those environmental factors really weigh into the cuisine as well.
1: So with all of these competing cuisines, not even maybe necessarily competing, but just different. I mean, like, look at in the U.S., you can go out to dinner one night to a, an Italian mm-hmm. restaurant, another night to a Vietnamese restaurant, another night. You know, I mean, it's yeah, absolutely it, right. But there they've managed to mingle a lot of the cuisines somewhat it seems to me it just yeah. reading your recipes and, um, and different Taiwanese uh, influence books.
3: Right. And, oh. and you mentioned noodles. So wheat based noodles were something that was really popularized by um, immigrants um, who fled Northern China to Taiwan. Um, uh, you know, so that's just, just one example because a lot of the, the country country's food or uh, noodles was rice based before then.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um Yeah. Yeah. Different, different climate. It's better for growing rice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, so aside from that, you know, the, the prevalence of course of noodles, we all know noodles are, you know, are, are very important.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, what, are there any other tastes or perhaps cooking methods that to you distinguish a lot of the dishes of Taiwan?
3: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, braised foods in Taiwan, Um, red braised, which is Hongshou, which is like a technique that um, it's enjoyed in Hunan province, um, as well as Sichuan. But um, Taiwan has its own sort of uh, version of it. And um, it's called Lu Wei. And things are just steeped in this wonderful, rich, aromatic broth and you can go to street markets and just choose from an array of different um, uh, morsels like, I don't know, fried tofu cubes, perhaps a fish ball here, some vegetable chunks there and just uh, choose them to have dip, you know, like quickly braised and dipped into this broth and enjoy there. Um, I think that's a really signature um, specialty or that is enjoyed in Taiwan. Um, a lot of folks will say the beef noodle soup that is enjoyed in Taiwan is a real signature dish of the Island. And, um,
1: yeah, I, that that I did, I did, uh, read about that and Mm notice that what, why does it, why is that different? And how is it different from a lot of the, you know, the other beef noodle soups you find, particularly in the Asian cultures?
3: Well, I mean, there isn't really any equivalent of it in China but it has conspicuous influences from mainland Chinese cuisine. There is wheat-based noodles. There is a little hint of spice. Um, some, many cooks in Taiwan will use a little bit of doubanjiang, which is a chili bean, fermented bean paste um, in the broth. Um, so people will say, oh, well, this is a mainland-created food. But actually, it doesn't really exist in the mainland. It's a Taiwanese specialty that was invented. Um, people believe in the military villages where people's families, uh, you know, families of the military were housed together communally. So they cooked food together often. And people believe that this is one of the dishes that was invented there.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um, and I so I interrupted you because you stopped. Then about what oh. other dishes, um, sort of distinguish the flavors or the cooking methods.
3: Um, I think that there's a lot of use of fresh basil, which is a you yeah. know like a Thai. Uh, Thai style of basil leaves that is Mm -hmm. used in a lot of dishes so um, another like kind of hallmark of Taiwanese cuisine is three cup chicken which is a braised chicken dish that has a lot of garlic and ginger but at the end a handful a big you know fistful of fresh basil is thrown in and it adds just like a wonderful aromatic and this dish is kind of like redone as like um, you, you know, you could get three cup squid or three cup tofu and, and, you know, other styles, um, other dishes in that style. Um, basil is also found in fried chicken crushed up and like the leaves are deep fried and then sort of served along with the fried chicken bites, um, or popcorn chicken, as many people call it. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a fun
1: signature ingredient. Interesting. Well, you mentioned, uh, the street food and street markets mm-hmm. and of course taiwan much like a lot of southeast asia in particular and and mainland is known for its markets it's night markets
3: Ab- right. that's absolutely yeah the huge night market scene where you can choose from so many different vendors and just have yourself a delightfully varied night of snacking and you know walking around and just kind of tasting here and there and that's just a really fun thing for college students to do, for anyone to do, really. Um, when I was there in college, that was definitely like, that was that was a thing to go out at night yeah. and do.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, it, people the who I've found, people my a, older age who maybe were born uh, right after the, uh, the Taiwan became the refuge for um, non-communists, are very defensive about being... Taiwanese, and don't say that I'm Chinese. I'm mm-hmm. Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, staunchly defending that that nationality, and uh, and yet, you know, you'll you'll see at the night markets. There's just all this similarity, and of course, everyone's um, celebrating, having a fun time, and around food, all that seems to melt away. And mm-hmm. <laughs> Eat the foods. <laughs> um, do you what? what do you attribute this to? I think that people
3: have grown up like, uh, you know, folks. Okay. My mom, my mother's generation who um, my, my grandparents I mentioned are from mainland China. So my mother's generation might have different feelings about this, Uh but um, uh, you know, my generation and folks who just grew up in this blended society and eating, you know, all these foods that were from, both or all parts of, you know, Ch- Taiwan as well as China and kind of like enjoying. So anything like, you know, wheat based is, you know, kind of conspicuously from uh, a later era of, of migration to Taiwan. So if you grew up eating that and that's your idea of Taiwanese food and then you go somewhere else like America, um, it's all it's all kind of nostalgic Taiwanese to you.
1: Right. Right.
3: Um, yeah. So it's just different generational associations.
1: Yeah. No, you're um, absolutely right. And yeah. I would be speaking more, I guess, about your parents' generation. Those people mm. being mm-hmm. you know, like priding themselves that they lived in Taiwan, and you know they were, <laughs> as someone said, I don't know what to call myself, and you know, well, you are Taiwanese American, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we have the difference. Um, Japan being such a presence in mm-hmm. in the country for so long and controlling it, 50 years. Um, it's interesting. You said that really the only thing that was, the, um, well, if you talked about the train, the food yeah. the trains. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the food so much, but just the bento box.
3: <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. So Japan, during the period of 1895 to 1945, as one might imagine, massive modernization occurred and um, around the world and also in Taiwan. So, uh, you know, the Japanese rule uh, was responsible for the uh, train system that was built in, in Taiwan. And, uh, it, you know, it, you, it's in the legacy, the interesting legacy of it is that um, bento boxes made for passengers on the train, you know, so they're sold at the railroad stations mm-hmm. and um, it, it's a perfect, you know, grab and go meal. Uh, they're still just as popular as as ever. Um, and, you know, they still serve a, a few classic uh, combos, which usually is a bed of rice, uh, perhaps a fried pork chop or some piece of chicken, or maybe it's tofu, some protein, and um, a, a little like a tuft of sautéed cabbage or some other vegetable, and then some sort of pickled item, like maybe a little slice of pickled radishes that's the same combo you'll see and you'll see enjoyed uh, widely throughout Taiwan and the train stations as well
1: uh, today. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and other places as well. I mean, everyone seems to have adopted that, but of course, you know, really had its uh, has meaning there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a great
1: legacy. (laughs) Uh, There are a couple of particular food items I want to talk about and recipes from the book and i want to talk about the new book that you helped co-write on mm-hmm. taiwanese american food uh, and because your book is strictly taiwanese that's, that's right taiwan mm-hmm. right um and I, I like the idea that you kind of morphed and involved this whole new culture and immigration population so we're going to talk about that when we come back from a brief break so stay tuned
2: Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 90 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including Indigenous environmental scientists and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, the best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandra Katz, co-owners of Heritage Seed Company, True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden-Newsome, and many more. PASA's conference takes place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on February 8th through 11th and include social networking events, plus an expansive trade show. Register now at org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming dot slash conference. Hi, we're back,
1: and I'm talking with Kathy Irway about Taiwanese food. In 2015, Kathy wrote the book The Food of Taiwan, Recipes from the Beautiful Island. Kathy, tell me what well, they what is the, what's the significance of, I mean, it's a beautiful island, but tell me the <laughs> significance of, does it mean anything like the the name? Yeah,
3: it does. Yeah. So when um, Portuguese sailors were um, kind of surveying the, the area back in the 1600s, I can't remember the exact date. Um, they named the island of Taiwan Ilha Formosa, which means beautiful island. Mm-hmm. And um, Formosa was the name that Taiwan was known by for for quite a while in the English language. Right. So it's a nod to that
1: previous name. Huh. The beautiful island. Beautiful. <laughs> well, we were talking about uh, flavors and and cooking techniques that might distinguish Taiwanese food from the other, all the other influences. Um, and one thing we didn't mention, of course, which is one of the prevalent uh things that a lot of people mention about Taiwanese food is stinky tofu.
3: (laughs) That's right.
1: Uh, Talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah. So stinky tofu is singularly enjoyed in, in Taiwan. I mean, it's not the only place where you can enjoy Taiwanese, uh, sorry, stinky tofu, but uh, I think it's just so common. It's a street food snack that, um, and it's also served in other dishes. You might find it in a hot pot here and there, but um I think the version that uh, at least, you know, brings back a lot of cravings and nostalgia for my mom and other other folks who grew up with it um, is these fried blocks of stinky tofu, um, crisp, you know, shell on the outside, very pungent on, on the inside. Um, and it's served with a little bit of pickled uh, cabbage. So it's a perfect kind of like Balance of very extreme flavors, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the smell you can just smell down the block uh, and stinky from
1: from the fermentation.
3: Fer- yeah, mm-hmm. so each vendor has their own sort of closely guarded secret recipe for what they put in their fermented brine, along with that tofu to make it so stinky. Um, generally, it's like uh, you know a combination of some you know vegetables, aromatics, um, just kind of let that ferment and. Uh, And, uh, let your, let your tofu just kind of pick it all up and absorb it.
1: Right. Well, of course now fermentation is having its day for, for all kinds of vegetables and and any foods, all foods. Mm -hmm. And who knew kimchi would be, you know, the rage, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's, that's another culture and another, (laughs) well, not really, but close, close by, um, the, um, the amer the taiwanese american hmm. uh cookbook that you just recently um co-wrote with the restaurateurs from Wenshan uh how does that differ from a lot of this that that's in the recipes of your book uh the food of taiwan mm-hmm. and what what is the what is the real um thrust there
3: yeah, so I was I was really excited when I started to see restaurateurs, namely Winsun and and a few others, you know, around Brooklyn, all eight eight six, um, uh, and uh, actually Cato Restaurant in L.A. Kind of like not not so much, you know, try to make this faithful exact replica of Taiwanese food, but really acknowledge and kind of have fun with the the you know the new the uh, American place and audience and you know it's just like any other diaspora cuisine um it you know it reflects the the chefs first and foremost and their share their combined experiences whatever it may be uh, wherever they may have grown up or come from um as well as their uh as well as an homage or their are you know wanting to pay respect for the Taiwanese traditions that they love so it, you know, it's a different, uh, it's a different blend. It's a different twist everywhere. Uh, you know, any way you spin it, but, um, yeah, at, at, uh, Winsun, I think it was like, it just like it really worked for the environment in Brooklyn and everybody just fell in love with this cuisine. So it really helped put Taiwanese food as a whole on the map, but it's, it's a playful twist. I mean, most of the dishes, a few of the dishes are pretty you know, close to the originals. Um, I would mention the flies heads, which is a a dish of um, chopped uh, flowering chives, um, stir fried with some ground pork. Um, But a few of the dishes are just actually really creative riffs. Um, I'm thinking of one salad, for instance, that is uh, it kind of deconstructs the ingredients that you might find inside the spring roll that they really love um, in Tainan. So uh, it's like shredded cabbage and carrots and shrimp grilled on top, but it's like in a tangy, fresh, uh, refreshing salad. So, uh, yeah, they like made, you know, they took some liberties that like kind of worked for their audience and kind of put their own spin on it. So that's that's what I think Taiwanese American food is. It's just kind of, yeah, playing around with it and giving it your own spin.
1: And yet you wouldn't want to play around with – red braised pork belly. I mean, that you want to keep that as it
3: is. (laughs) Yeah, but you could, uh, serve it in various different, uh, like ways. Uh, you could, you know, it guabao is like the steam sandwich buns that you would find juicy slabs of pork belly in, but perfect example, actually just last weekend, eight, eight, six, um, and Dominic Ansel bakery, um, teamed up to collaborate on this uh guabao or uh i think it was a shaobing anyway a steamed it was like a play on that steamed sandwich bun that i mentioned with a savory red braised porks pork belly slices mm-hmm. but they put it in this crusty like croissant like bun that was created by dominique Ansel. so it was a it was a really fun uh, mashup and it was delicious wow. it was sold out yeah <laughs>
1: I mean that's that's interesting. I mean, it's really an embracing embracing you know a couple different cultures all Right. I mean. yeah, yeah, I like that. That's very good. Um the oh you mentioned the buns and mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read your article on the noodle dish talk about that noodle dish the jinjian mian.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mian is like a really like it it okay so <sighs> As I explore in the dish, it literally translates to fried sauce noodles. Um, But uh, one one of the sources I spoke to, Carolyn Phillips, who is uh, a prolific writer of um, culinary historian of Chinese food, um, she believes it got mixed up with like mixed sauce noodles, which was a different spelling. And that was how it was referred to in Northeast uh, China, where most folks attribute the dish as originating from. So, but um, basically, it's a deliciously hearty um, dish that a lot of people draw parallels to bolognese. So you got some fresh wheat noodles, usually thicker variety, and um, it's topped and it's it's brothless. So you know they're cooked and drained, and then it's topped with a big ladle of this ground pork or maybe minced pork um, sauce. That is like savory and sweet, it has some uh you know you could add some like onion and stuff like that, but um it's it's basically a, like a hamburger helper like smothered over this <laughs> pile of noodles, and then there's um, slivers of uh julienned cucumbers usually served on top as long as as well as some other optional garnishes like maybe slivered uh carrots and um maybe some uh scallions cilantro
1: yeah right. well and you and the what gives it its depth of flavor and that umami punch Mm -hmm. is that the fermented bean sauce. Yes.
3: Tianmian Jiang. It's actually translates to, uh, uh, sweet wheat sauce, but, um, a lot of people translate it as sweet bean sauce. That's something I also explore in the, in the article, like why, you know, I have a couple of theories that um, I provide in that article, why there's a mix up there. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, essentially, it's a delicious, savory, fermented uh, sauce that's brown and thick. And you just sort of stir it into your ground pork with a little liquid and bada bing, bada boom. You got a great dinner.
1: All right. Well, I mean, the story, you did tell a story about the, the original fermentation. Oh, yes. <laughs> the bun. I think it bears repeating because okay. it really, it was yes. great.
3: So again, Carolyn Phillips told me that uh, this sauce is originally made by fermenting uh, steamed bun. So manto, it's a and it's a northern Chinese bun, but it's also enjoyed elsewhere uh, around the world um, now nowadays. But um, it's <laughs> she said that you traditionally would put it inside a jar and just kind of let it mold and then like let it kind of evolve and ferment into this funky dark viscous brown liquid and she tried it one time and it lo and behold it worked so if you have the courage you can always give that a try
1: well Um, I mean you were very descriptive you said you know (laughs) look at something that's getting moldy and has that gray fuzz on it (laughs) I mean that was I, yeah, I would want you know you just have to have patience, wait a little yeah. longer until it liquefies, yeah. right?
3: So much of the foods that we eat are fermented, but we don't have to look at the fermentation process, and I'm sure we would be totally grossed out if we did.
1: Right, and it's interesting because this this dish of noodles, it, upon first glance, you would think, oh, it looks like it would be in traditional style, a little spicy, have all this, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a hot hit. But it's not. It's really, no. as you said, akin to a bolognese sauce. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's
3: not. Yeah, it's not spicy. It's just like savory, sweet. I would say, like, kind of like a beautiful like soy saucy glaze and porky. It's delightful. All
1: right. Uh, talk to me about the prevalence of um, of seafood in mm. the Taiwanese cuisine. Well, oysters, yeah. I know, are, are oh, oysters We're all over like right?
3: Yeah, and I mean. As anywhere that is near the ocean, I think that oysters, you know, in New York, they were once very, very common to, you know, just get on the, um, just along the piers, you could just grab some, you know, oysters and, you know, people still do have those nostalgic shops, but yeah, they eat everything from the sea in Taiwan, uh, you name it. And there's wonderful, wonderful, like seafood markets along like coastal areas that you can just, and then have like kind of like a small restaurant attached to it. Um, like in so many countries, right. We've seen this kind of tradition, but, uh, there, you know, you can just kind of look at what they're, what is being caught in these, you know, maybe baskets, barrels, tanks with fish, pick your fish and pick a few different ways that they will cook it. But one of my favorites is like get a whole fish and then they'll like lightly, uh, quickly pan fry it with some ginger, some scallions. Throw in some soy sauce, throw in some rice wine, give it a splash, give it a toss, and boom—you know, turn it onto a plate. Wow. Super fresh. It's so great.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's—I mean—that's the food sounds, you know, so fresh. I mean, that's that's yeah. one thing I think can say is is fresh, fresh food. Yeah. Um, it's interesting this whole mix of you know of of cultures in it and. And so much of how we understand any culture obviously is first through food if we're new to a culture we learn about it when we go to a new culture we bring our own with it for comfort um, and and this really shows how a you know a, a country with so much influence formed its own cuisine by incorporating all these influences together and that Brings me to what you are currently involved in your podcast, Self-Evident, and that is people of Asian heritage and their experiences in another country, another culture. They're not food; they're people. <laughs> uh, and and uh, t- tell us a little bit about that and what's going on there, and what you're what you're attempting to present.
3: Thanks. So Self-Evident is, um, you know, driven by stories of real people, you know, not celebrities. Um, we we strive to tell the stories that aren't being told, but, you know, are happening and playing out every day um, from average Asian-Americans. Um, and I, I think that, uh, yeah, the, the real power is like we, we really um, the beauty of it, I think, is that, you know, listeners sometimes then. You know, become hosts or not hosts, but producers, and then tell their stories and like subjects on it. So, um, for instance, our our latest uh, season, um, we actually co-produced uh, the season, which was a five-parter of episodes from Lisa Fu, who had you know been listening to the show, but she had you know this idea for her own podcast she'd been wanting to do for a long time, exploring. Her mother's and her parents' um, experiences uh, fleeing Cambodia as refugees, and you know, not really knowing their entire story, and kind of finding out much later in life uh, that you know all these fascinating, you know, and, and sometimes horrifying, but also sometimes just uh, really gratifying uh, experiences. And you know, she wanted to get get her mother on on tape and record all that. Um, so so yeah, that's one example of of the stories we tell. And now. Uh, Linda, you mentioned not not food related, but we did just sprinkle in a few food related <laughs> <Of course. laughs> bits throughout. <laughs> um, yeah, there was one episode we did that was all about fruit and what it means to various people um, from Asian American descent, uh, and sh- sharing stories around fruit. That was that was fun.
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, it's so it's so much fun to shop in the um, in Chinatown or you know the Asian markets and. It's an education. Just you know, walking down and looking at the yeah. different stalls and see the different types of fruit. And I mean, we know that it doesn't grow here. Well, not locally in New York. Obviously, they'd have to bring it in from California or places you know across the oceans. Um, but it's yeah. it's marvelous. I can imagine the fruit story horrific, yeah. right?
3: Yeah, I like I like your attitude. I think that's a great idea. It's just kind of like stroll and learn and taste and buy things and just try things out. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, is there anything that you would like to tell us about your feelings on on the food of Taiwan, or, or, you know, the, just yeah. enjoying food about uh, from mixed cultures?
3: Yeah, I think that that's like the really exciting um, thing that I love exploring right now. I'm based in New York. I'm based in America. I'm not in Taiwan anymore. I can't really comment right now on the evolving cuisines in Taiwan, but lo and behold, in the last decade or so, uh, we've been seeing like a really, really exciting period for Taiwanese-American cuisine unfold. And I think that, yeah, restaurateurs and also cookbook authors, um, uh, shout out to Frankie Ga, who recently published uh, um, First Generation Stories and Recipes from my Taiwanese-American household, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, we're seeing all these stories and all these like, interesting recipes evolve and uh be shared and be discussed and it's kind of like a really dynamic cuisine that is being written right now Taiwanese American cuisine that is so I'm really excited about you know exploring that
1: and seeing that yeah and sharing it (laughs) you are you you've been uh on that path for a while now and you have a lot to say I'm sure so uh one thing that I um you talked about the, uh, something I saw in my notes and because um, you talked about the noodles being wheat noodles, of course mm-hmm. um, and wheat is now more prevalent in a lot of those um, Asian cultures. what about breads
3: yeah same 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 thing so you know bready stuff was a more northern Chinese specialty um, climate reasons again um, so if you're from yeah, like southern areas of China, as well as, you know, if you're from Taiwan uh, originally, um, you you would have more rice-based things, rice-based noodles. You see a lot of rice-based noodles that are still being enjoyed widely, as well as rice-based like dumpling wrappers, right? So there's this, uh, you know, there's and and sticky rice-based right. things, mochi, mochi stuff is like really, really enjoyed in Taiwan as well. So, um, but, uh, now you just have a blend because you have, had, I mean, and we have this everywhere, right? We, we can enjoy foods from, from just about anywhere. Um, but yeah, you just have this blend of like, uh, breads, buns from Northern, you know, China that is being, yeah, riffed on and and kind of like adapted with all these different, uh, in, in all these different ways. Um, what I'm thinking of one, uh, night market dish called the nutritious sandwich in Taiwan yeah. that is like a deep fried uh steamed uh, wheat bun and uh, it's like crispy and then it's stuffed with like slivered uh, cucumber and ham it's it's just it's it wild like you don't like see that I don't know if that you would you know find that elsewhere it's just like a it's an invention from some what? some great vendor who just takes some ingredients from here and some ingredients from there and just says, Hey, I think this tastes good.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's. I think night markets are fantastic in that regard. I think mm-hmm. you, you know so many people are are very um, inventive. They use it as a, mm-hmm. a great, you know, great avenue to explore their own. Yeah, travels. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I'm getting hungry, so (laughs) I'm going to wrap that up. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, Kathy, and you're just so full of of information. Um, I want to let our listeners know that The Food of Taiwan is still very much available, and Kathy Mm -hmm. Irway is the author. Um, And the new book that just came out is uh, The Taiwanese... Taiwanese American, what is it? Uh,
3: Winsun presents a Taiwanese American
1: cookbook. Winsun presents the Chinese, the Taiwanese American, Taiwanese American cookbook. Yep. That was a slip. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's wonderful. And tune into your self-evident podcast, everyone, if you will. Um, I think there's just some very interesting things coming around and a great way to, uh, to learn about cultures, and to, to understand other people as well. Thank
3: you so much, Linda. It was such a such a joy to, to join you on your show. Great. Thank you. A
1: long time coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And thank you all so much for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is sponsored by Heritage Radio Network, and it is a listener-supported network of food podcasts. So tune in. When you tune into this show, tune into org, and consider making a donation. There's always a donate button in the upper right corner. We look forward to having you listen to the next podcast. Thank you. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.